1: Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen.
2: <laughs>
1: so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Acast hey helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere, acast.com.
0: Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Farm Policy and your host of Farm Policy Playlist. Each week we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. And this week I'm featuring 544 Days, a Spotify original podcast that tells the story of Jason Rezaian, an Iranian-American journalist for the Washington Post, who in 2014 was arrested in Tehran and spent 544 days in the country's notorious Evin prison. Told by Razayan and those closest to him, the series looks at the incredible lengths that his family, editors, and the Obama administration went to to secure his release. In just a minute, we're going to play the first episode of the series, An Avocado Revolution. But first, I spoke to the host, Jason Razayan about working on the series and how humour has helped him tell the story of his gruelling imprisonment. Thank you so much for for sharing the podcast with us. I thought the first episode was just incredible, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the series. I was wondering, I mean, I went, went to journalism school, and the thing they would always tell us when we were pitching stories for video or radio is that if something happened in the past, they would always be like, how do you tell a story that happened in the past and make it real and make it current? And I think you really captured that in the podcast. Like, I really felt like I was there. I've never been to Tehran, but I really felt like I had been listening to that first episode. And so... Talk me through that. Like, How do you capture the events of 2014, 15, 16 during your your detention for people?
2: First of all, I've had a lot of time, starting with the moment of my arrest up until now, to think about what happened to us and to try and figure out what it was all about. And I think one of the really unique things about the story is that I had the opportunity when I got out to really report it out, of course, there are some sources, like my captors and members of the Iranian regime, that I can't interview or that wouldn't be interviewed for this or for my book. but I spend an incredible amount of time with the people who were involved, and when I wrote my book, that came out in early two thousand nineteen. It's very much a first-person memoir that takes place much of the time in prison. It's all told from my point of view, but it's really informed by these conversations that I had, conversations with my wife, with my mother, with my brother, with my employers at the Washington Post, and then with all of these folks in government who were involved in trying to win my release. And so I've had the opportunity and the time to, in my mind, Craft the narrative in a way that is a story. And for me personally, there's been something almost therapeutic about that, about seizing on the moments that are the most poignant, the most funny, the most informative, as I would do with any other story or try to do with any other story. So I think we had this opportunity to tell this story. You worry that it's not going to be fresh. But one thing I've learned about covering... Iran and the enmity between the United States and Iran is that it never goes out of style. So, you know, so much of, of what we talk about in this show is really relevant right now as well. But, you know, I appreciate that sentiment that, you know, it feels hopefully immediate for listeners.
0: I mean, you mentioned there, you know, humor, and that was something that struck me as well. You know, it's obviously a very stressful, terrifying experience for for you and your wife, but I was struck by how many times in the first episode I actually kind of chuckled. Talk me through what, you know, what role does humor play in retelling this heavy story?
2: I think for me, it plays a huge part in it. Otherwise, you know, over the past five and a half years since I've been released, people have asked me so many questions, right? Have wanted to know so many different things about my experience. And if I answer those questions in the way that they expected me to answer them, or that maybe that they, in some cases, they hoped I would answer them, I'd be in a very different state of mind. But I decided very early on in my imprisonment, but also in the time after, that, you know, being able to, to laugh about these things is really the only way that you're going to get through it, right? And so, you know, sometimes I might crack a joke about my experience and, you know, the other person uh, who I'm talking to cringes. But you know what? I was the guy that sat in prison. (laughs) You know what I mean? If I can laugh about it, so can you.
0: In reporting the story of the incredible efforts to get you released, what did you learn about about the way US officials work and the foreign policy machine works in Washington because you must have had a pretty unique insight into how things get done
2: certainly I mean I I think as I sat in prison I had no idea of what people were, were doing on my behalf I learned a lot about what it takes to bring something like the unjust imprisonment or hostage taking of an American on the other side of the world what it takes to bring it up, the policy agenda. Because these sorts of things don't get resolved unless there is a real political cost to not getting them resolved. Ultimately, my brother, my mom, my wife, my editors at the Washington Post, the publisher of the Washington Post, my friends you know, the, that I knew from years and years of, of freelancing and friends in, in different industries and my appearance on Anthony Bourdain's show, all of these things worked together to make my plight something that the US government couldn't just push aside. And, you know, part of what we tried to do with this podcast, and it was one of my goals really early on, was to, you know, provide kind of a a blueprint of how you might go about this if you find yourself in this really impossible to imagine struggle, both from the point of view of the person who's sitting there being held hostage and also from from the people who are trying to secure their safe release.
0: What do you hope that people will take away from from your story and from listening to this podcast?
2: So many things. I mean, first of all, I I want people to, to think about Americans and others being held hostage in other parts of the world. So often when we hear about a case of a, a fellow citizen being you know, what we call wrongfully or unjustly detained in another country, I feel as though the media doesn't do enough to call out the bogus nature of the accusations being leveled against the person. You'll hear clips in the show of headlines being read on news on television and, and radio that you know jason Resign accused of spying you know i i wasn't really accused of spying yeah. i was being held and that was sort of the local pretense for holding me we shouldn't be repeating that so anytime you hear about someone who's being held abroad and there's a level of opacity around the circumstances of their detention you should ask yourself is this person guilty of any crime has there ever been any evidence uh, presented that they've done anything wrong? And if there hasn't been, you know, there, there should be a presumption of innocence. So that that's one piece. Second, I mean, I think it's an important story about U.S.-Iran relations and the challenges of those relations, but also a moment when a different kind of relationship seemed possible. I don't know if that's possible now. I think we're, we're living in a very different world, but it, it's a... I think a an important historical document uh, about the the negotiations that went on between the U.S. and Iran uh, in 2014 and 2015. Uh, one that I think penetrates it more deeply than than other accounts have so far. And I also hope it's just a, a you know a wild story because I lived it and it happened. And I think people will be really enthralled by the many twists and turns.
0: That was Jason Rezaian, and here now is the episode 544 Days, An Avocado Revolution.
2: Before this show begins, you should know a couple things. First, it includes some pretty unpleasant descriptions of my and my wife's experiences in an Iranian prison. Second, there's a lot of cussing. Solitary confinement wasn't something I was ever going to get used to. I knew that immediately. The room I was in was tiny, long enough to lie down in, but too narrow to stretch out my arms. The walls were faux marble, and they were always cold. There were sounds that seemed designed to never let me sleep. The noisy grinding of a fan. A sink with a faucet that dripped and dripped, and dripped, constantly, lights that never turned off. I knew all these things were designed to keep me awake and fuck with my head, breaking me down along with any will to resist. Confusion becomes fear, becomes desperation, becomes hopelessness. But all that takes a while. At first I was just trying to make sense of a very foreign routine. During my first few weeks in a prison in Iran, my guard would open the door in my cell every day and lead me to the interrogation room. My interrogator was named Kazem. Whatever you picture when you think of an interrogator, that's not Kazem. He wasn't a big guy, 5'8", 5'9", narrow shoulders, glasses, receding hairline. Completely nondescript Iranian dude. If it was just him and me, I was sure I could take him. I know it sounds nuts, but after a couple of weeks, I actually started to look forward to seeing Kazim. He was my only human contact. So I tried to make the best of it, tried to connect with him. He, on the other hand, was doing his job, which was to torment me. He'd repeat the same ridiculous questions over and over. Why don't you just confess? We know you're a spy. Why else would you have written emails to government officials? I kept telling him I was a reporter. That didn't satisfy him. After a while, the questions stopped sounding so bizarre. Because I started to view them as the obstacle between me and freedom. Like a code I had to crack. But it turned out, there was no right answer. Or if there was, I didn't have it.
0: We were all astonished that Iran would have imprisoned a Washington Post correspondent. For our way of thinking, it makes no sense.
2: Why would you take a journalist? I knew that you weren't digging around into anything you shouldn't have been. You were following the rules. I'm Jason Rezaian, and this is 544 Days. That's how much time I spent as a hostage in Iran. 544 days, sitting in prison wondering when or if anyone would come to my rescue. For a while, I wondered if they even knew I was still alive. This show is about what it took to get me out and the people who made it happen. My family, my employer, people at the highest levels of the U.S. government. And for them, it couldn't have come at a worse time. I remember just sitting there and thinking, fuck. They'd never gone this far before. The Middle
3: East was heading towards war. These are like world-class goods. It was like there was this massive hurricane of geopolitical forces, in your case was whirling around in the eye of that storm.
2: In this first episode, I'm going to tell you how I went from being the Washington Post's Tehran bureau chief to getting interrogated by smelly guys with beards about avocados. Yeah, ava-fucking-cados. I got detained in 2014, but first let me take you back to 2009. That's when I moved to Iran. For years, I had dreamed of being a reporter, and I finally decided to go all in. It might sound a little reckless to drop everything and move to Iran. To me, it felt like my clearest path to a career as a foreign correspondent. I didn't have the time or the patience to climb the rungs of the local newspaper, but I knew a lot about Iran. So going there actually seemed like a smart career move. Most American journalists would just parachute in for big state-sponsored events. But by the end of the year, I was the only one who still lived there. Because my dad was from Iran, I had dual citizenship. I grew up around Iranians, and I knew the language, which allowed me to get out in the street and talk to people. That gave me a pretty unique perspective. Instead of writing about another one of the Supreme Leader's many speeches, I'd write about a guy in the crowd who was forced to attend that speech and was bummed out because he had to miss a big soccer match. I wrote pieces about artists defying the authorities, musicians who played bluegrass and heavy metal, filmmakers who made movies about transgender people. Another big thing happened to me that year. I met someone, Yegi. Before I moved to Iran, I'd never really thought about marriage. But all that changed the moment I saw Yegi. This incredible and beautiful light walked into the room and grabbed all of my attention. More than a decade later, she hasn't let go. what'd you think that first night that we met?
4: Seriously, we have to talk about that? I mean, what did you feel?
2: I feel like I knew from the second that I saw you that I wanted to know you.
4: I mean, you were cute. Um, A little bit disheveled. (laughs) So I thought to myself, oh my God, I have to revamp his style. Um,
2: How long did that take?
4: Forever. (laughs) We are still working on it. (laughs) So I was in love.
2: But I promised you a story about avocados, so let's get to that. I grew up in California, and there are a few things I love more than a good burrito. When I moved to Tehran, I discovered Garcia's, a Mexican restaurant. It was probably the only authentic Mexican restaurant for thousands of miles in any direction. The owner, Janet Garcia, grew up in Mexico. For me, eating at Garcia's was like going home. Only one thing
3: was missing, guacamole. That's because there's no avocados in Iran. I thought that was so funny. Why isn't there any avocados? That's kind of an interesting question. That's
2: my friend David Lang. I told him about Garcia's when I was home in California in 2010
3: for a visit. I thought, this is a great story, and this is a really humanizing way to talk about life in Tehran and who Jason is, even better. David's a tech entrepreneur now, but at the time, he was just a
2: guy with ideas, he had one that he thought would help me get some more attention from my writing. And so that's where the seed of the Kickstarter project really came from, a Kickstarter project. Remember, this was 2010, so crowdfunding was kind of new. David and I came up with a Kickstarter that would raise money for Iran's first avocado farm. We called it the Iranian Avocado Quest. We filmed a video to go with it in my parents' kitchen. And one of the... Uh... The many troubling things that, uh, that I saw in Iran this year, or didn't see, uh, was the fact that there's no avocados to be had in, uh, inside the Islamic Republic. And I want to get to the bottom of that. I didn't really plan on becoming an avocado farmer. But it wasn't just a joke either. I was a freelance writer, so I was always hustling for story ideas and readers. And sometimes you have to make people laugh to get them to think. Were there no avocados in Iran because sanctions made it hard to import the seeds? Had some cleric deemed the avocado not halal? Or was there just no demand
3: because Iranians hadn't discovered guacamole yet? It just all kind of fit as this funny, interesting story that could be a hook to pull people into telling some of the bigger stories that you wanted to tell. The bigger goal was to get Americans to perceive Iran
2: through a different lens. As a country that was filled with smart people who were curious about the wider world, people who were welcoming to Westerners, especially Americans. The Iranians I knew were people who would love guacamole if only they had the chance to try it. I propose is to uh, to bring the avocado to Iran. Uh, there's going to be a lot of hurdles, a lot of roadblocks.
3: The question of whether this was a dangerous thing, like this was doing this avocado Kickstarter project, putting you at risk was very much a concern of mine at the time. However, your confidence about it and your reassurance that this will be fine was enough to to sway me to go along with it. And I wish I would have been more concerned, to be honest with you.
2: We posted the Kickstarter with a $10,000 goal, but it only ended up getting a little over $2,000 we weren't going shopping for farmland anytime soon. In the meantime, I went back to Iran. I was getting assignments from places like Time, Slate, San Francisco Chronicle. Things were going well for me as a freelancer. A Couple of years passed, and then the Washington Post got in touch. They needed a new Tehran correspondent. I was thrilled. It finally felt like I had made it. In the interview process, One of the editors even asked about the Avocado Quest Kickstarter. They thought it was funny. And in the end, they offered me the job. A year later, Yegi and I got married. Now I had a wife and a serious job. At age 37, I finally had the answer to the question, what are you gonna do when you grow up? Yegi had earned a master's in English translation and was also building a career as a reporter. When we got married, she was the Tehran correspondent for Bloomberg News. Like I said before, it was really important to me to write not just about the Iranian regime, but also about real people. And the one thing everyone can relate to is what real people eat. So I wrote about upscale burger joints popping up all over Tehran that were knocking off American brands like Five Guys. I wrote about the free food given out during Shia Islam's holiest month, and the website some enterprising young Iranians built to map the best food. Stories like that caught the attention of readers I didn't know I had.
3: That's what I've been waiting. That's the crispy rice at the bottom.
2: Over time, I cultivated a small but growing side hustle showing visiting TV crews around
3: Tehran. Right there are the, yeah. what's it called? Tarek.
2: Which is how Yegi and I ended up on Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown. Tarek.
3: Exactly. Oh, lovely.
2: Merci. We met Tony and his crew at a restaurant with a fabulous view of Tehran and terrible food. It was June of 2014. Do you like it? You happy here? Look, I, I'm at a point now after five years where uh, I miss certain things about home. I miss my buddies. I miss uh, burritos, but I love it. I love it and I hate it, you know, but it's home. It's become home. Six weeks after we taped that segment with Bourdain, Yegi and I were going out to a surprise birthday party. It was the night of July twenty-second, 2014. We'd called two taxis, one for us and one for a friend. Under her long coat and headscarf, my wife was dressed up. She was wearing makeup and a short blue dress, not exactly conforming with the Islamic Republic's strict rules for female modesty. And Yegi suspected that something was up.
4: Our doorman, at the main gate, called my cell phone and said, Mrs. Rosayan, your two taxis are waiting for you downstairs. He never called, none of them ever called us on my cell phone. So that was like alarming to me.
2: Yegi thought the doorman was trying to give us a sign. So she decided to practice a little trade craft. We've been watching a lot of Homeland that summer.
4: I knew something weird is happening. Also, I put a little bit of colorless lipstick on our doorknob and I put it there and I was thinking to myself, if we will be gone for a few hours and we come back, if someone touches our doorknob, I can feel it. But we were not gone for a few hours.
2: We locked up and headed downstairs in the elevator. When the doors opened in the parking garage, there were two guys standing there. One of them was pointing a gun right at me. Without even thinking, I reached into my
4: pocket. You were trying to take your phone out, and those guys thought, you have a gun. So they, they, they got physical with you. I was hoping that they don't hit you or anything, because those motherfuckers don't have mercy on anyone.
2: They didn't hit me but they did knock the phone out of my hand and forced their way into the elevator. They waved around an arrest warrant too fast for us to get a good look at it. They were taking us back up to the apartment. They made us sit down on opposite sides of the couch while they ransacked our home. Yegi quietly showed me something while they flipped our furniture over and took our computers. The key to our storage unit in the garage. The storage unit that was full of alcohol, which is illegal in Iran
4: said, I need to use the restroom. I need to use the restroom. I need to use the restroom. So I went in there. The guy stood outside. I obviously turned the tab on um, and then took the key out of my chain and quietly put it down in the toilet and I flush and then turned the tab off and came back.
2: Our hard-earned stash of booze, 20 bottles of hard stuff, a case of wine, and about 150 bottles of beer. Probably gone forever. But I knew that owning that liquor was the only crime we had committed. Coming up, Yegi and I meet our captors, and they have some questions for us.
4: They asked if I knew what the avocado revolution was. And I said, it's not like that. There wasn't any avocado revolution or crisis or anything. I mean, it's a fruit, and he really honestly wanted to bring this fruit to Iran the way banana came 20 years ago or a kiwi.
2: My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman.
3: I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The
2: ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth. Truth with an open mind. Night was falling when they put Yegi and me in an unmarked van. They handcuffed me, took my glasses, and without them, I can't see shit, but they didn't know that. And then they blindfolded me. Did you think that we were going away for a few hours or for a long
4: time? Yes and no. You never know. I mean, I knew that we were in deep trouble. But obviously I was trying to be hopeful and say, no, 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 Um, maybe a week, 10 days, something like that.
2: Yegi grew up in Iran. So based on a lifetime living under that regime, she naturally took a pessimistic view. I figured we'd be out in a matter of hours. Evin prison is a massive compound on the edge of Tehran at the base of a mountain. One of the most beautiful views of the city. There wasn't a prison there. It would be prime real estate. It's surrounded by towering cement walls, topped by barbed wire. Evin has become notorious in Iran and around the world. It's where political prisoners and hostages are taken to rot. There's an execution yard right there on the grounds. International NGOs accuse Iran of committing serious human rights abuses there. And it was only two miles from where Yegi and I lived. When we arrived at the prison, they split us up immediately. They took Yegi to the women's section.
4: They took me to an extremely dirty cell. They brought me those dirty prison clothes, which they were not washed after the last person finished with them. They made me change. They took my wallet, because I remember I had my wallet with me, They made me take all my jewelry stuff out, wash my makeup, and then they put me in front of a camera and took a few mock shots from me.
2: And then she was blindfolded, and they took her to the ward's infirmary.
4: So they immediately put me on scale, weighed me, took my blood pressure, um, made me feel a bunch of forms in the doctor's office, like, what are your precondition existing, like... This type of thing. So all of this took like I two hours. hours. Yeah.
2: And I was still blindfolded. They took me to a room where I could tell there were other people. Someone was introduced as the great judge. He said he knew everything about me. I was a spy. I worked for the CIA. If I confessed to everything, I could go home tonight. And then I'd become their spy. It was so absurd that I couldn't help but laugh. Then they led Yegi down a corridor to the room I was in. I couldn't see her because I was blindfolded, but I knew she was there. You said to me, I'll never forget this, you said, I'm wearing prison clothes. You're not wearing prison clothes.
4: They already made me change to prison clothes, means I'm staying. What about you?
2: Yegi knew that changing into prison clothes meant that she wasn't going to be leaving that night. So what about me? Would I have to go home without her? After about two minutes, they pulled Yegi back out of the room. It was my last contact with her for a very long time. And then the great judge asked me a question. What is this avocado project? We know what it is. We know that this is CIA code. So I tried to explain Kickstarter. and I tried to explain the project. They wouldn't let go. Did they ever ask you about the avocado project?
4: Yes, but not that night. Like, a few days later. They asked if I knew what the avocado revolution was. And I said, I have no idea. I have to be honest, for like 20 seconds, I couldn't even remember what avocado is. But I eventually remembered, because you told me about it. And I said, it's not like that. There wasn't any avocado revolution or crisis or anything. I mean, it's a fruit. In fact, Iranians don't know what to do with it, but Jason makes a nice salad out of it, and he really honestly wanted to bring this fruit to Iran, the way banana came 20 years ago, or kiwi.
2: As the weeks and months went by, this four-year-old failed Kickstarter kept coming up again and again in my interrogations, until they literally brought me an avocado. And they're like, we bought two of them. Here's one for you. We tried the other one. It's fucking disgusting. It turned out that around the same time we made that Kickstarter video, there were articles in the American press about a secret program to gather intelligence in hostile countries, including Iran. Its codename? Avocado.
3: Avocado. If you Google Project Avocado what comes up is the Obama administration's CIA plan to, you know, monitor regimes in other countries. That's my friend David Lang again. And it's true. Google
2: it. A Wikipedia page comes up about secret surveillance. But I have no idea if my captors had heard about this or if they had connected it to me. It's just a crazy coincidence I propose is to bring the avocado to be run and uh, there's going to be a lot of hurdles a lot of roadblocks
3: when I think about the avocado project we started it with this sense of it's so crazy it just might work it's got the absurdity as this shield that no one could accuse us of really any wrongdoing even though the
2: Kickstarter kept coming up, it became obvious very quickly that this was never about avocados there was a whole constellation of forces inside and outside of Iran, that led to my arrest. At the time, no one knew that. Nobody on the outside knew exactly why we were being held. And the Iranians weren't saying much.
1: Detained in Iran, but their whereabouts still unknown. 38-year-old Iranian-American journalist Jason Rezaian and his wife Yagana Salehi were taken into custody on Tuesday evening. For its part, the U.S. State Department has said they are aware of the report, but have not commented further.
2: I had my own theories about why Yegi and I were locked up, which we'll get to. But for the time being, I was sealed off from the outside world. Around midnight on the night we were arrested, my captors made me change into prison clothes. Basically, light blue pajamas and a pair of slippers. They put me in a cell, eight feet by four feet. No bed, just a dirty piece of rug. On the ceiling, there was a fluorescent light that was never turned off, and the fan that made a crazy amount of noise. I didn't sleep at all that night. I couldn't stop worrying about Yegi. Whatever this was about, I was sure that I was the reason Yegi was in prison right now. I tried to tell myself this would all end soon. To be honest, it was too early to be really scared. I was disoriented, kind of flabbergasted. What I couldn't know, what I didn't find out until much later, was that wheels were already turning that would set in motion months of behind-the-scenes maneuvers, secret talks, and public pronouncements. I was just a reporter, but I was about to become the story, or at least a major character.
0: We are not gonna relent until we bring home our Americans who are unjustly detained in Iran. Journalist Jason Rezaeen should be released.
2: Obama always struggled with my name. Anyway, all this was happening while the US and Iran were negotiating the nuclear deal. The same deal that Trump pulled out of in 2018.
3: This is a horrible deal in every way. We got nothing in that deal. We got our hostages back, and now we find out what we actually paid for the hostages,
2: and it was in cash. Whenever you hear people on Fox News talking about pallets of cash going to Iran, they're talking about the deal that got me out of prison. As it turns out, my freedom ended up becoming part of what was being negotiated. In this show, I'm going to introduce you to the main players in the Obama administration, who spent many months hashing out that deal. My fate was riding on whether those folks could get these two countries to come to an agreement, two countries that had seen each other as enemies for decades. This is a story of dedicated public servants juggling unbelievably complicated circumstances. Nuclear is nuclear. There can be no compromises. What do we
0: owe to people like Jason Rezaian languishing in Evan Prison?
2: If you don't get this unstuck at the airport, everything else could fall apart. It's also a story about a newspaper, The Washington Post, forced into a really uncomfortable situation.
1: There was some concern that if we made a big issue out of it at the time, that the Iranians would think they had some sort of prize. And we didn't want them to think that they had a prize.
2: And it's a story about the Rezaians. Just an average American family from California, thrust into the middle of a hostage negotiation. The deal could have not happened. So again, if it's like, well, is there going to be a deal? Well, there can't be a deal unless Jason gets out. Well, if the whole thing falls apart then, then Jason doesn't get out.
0: My fear was that you might have a heart
4: attack or stroke because of the stress.
2: I'm one of the lucky ones. I got out. There are still others like me in Iran and a lot of other places. This show is also about what it'll take to get them out. And if, God forbid, someone you love ends up behind bars in a hostile place, be prepared for the question we all ask when we come home. The fuck were you doing to get me out? And you better have a damn good answer.
0: And that was the episode 544 Days, An Avocado Revolution. My thanks to Jason Rezion. 544 Days is a Spotify original podcast produced by Gimlet, Crooked Media and A24. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at the show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Simone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts.
1: Here's a show that we recommend. Hi I'm Anna Ferris and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey you got somebody you care about you lost track of them go find out Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Faris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com